If you will please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. We're continuing here in Matthew's Gospel. Last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, and we had a glorious time of worship, didn't we? Y'all enjoyed being in God's house last week? Amen. It was fun. Um, and uh, it's always great to celebrate and to remember the resurrection of our Savior because without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without resurrection, there is no faith. Without resurrection, we have no hope. Which gives us a direction here um, in all of Scripture. The resurrection is the linchpin that holds it all together. Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. So if you'll stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, let's continue in this wonderful exploration of the gospel. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this time to hear directly from you in your word. And so God, I pray at this moment you would speak boldly to each and every one of us. All who are hearing these words, I pray, would hear you. And so God, there is something about this narrative in, in Matthew's gospel, this scene where Jesus is teaching those who are eager to follow him what it takes, what, what the cost is. It is not something that is casual. We do not follow your son Jesus because it is the popular thing or, or the, the, the thing of the moment. It is something, Father, of, of full and 100% dedication and sacrifice as your son sacrificed all for us. To God, you're calling us to sacrifice ourselves in following him. And so, God, I pray you'd speak boldly this morning. Teach us, challenge us, Father, we pray. Convict us where we need conviction. Inspire us where we need inspiration. Let this moment, this hour be for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God, have a seat. God bless you. As we return to Matthew's gospel account of Jesus' ministry, do you remember before uh, Resurrection Sunday, actually several weeks ago, because we took about a three-week break, and looked at the uh, the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now we come back to Matthew chapter 8. And if you remember in our last time in chapter 8, Jesus was in Simon Peter's house, and he heals an elderly woman, Peter's mother-in-law. You remember that? Uh, this follows the many miraculous signs of healing that Peter witnessed in those early days of Jesus' ministry. Peter would have been with Jesus almost from the beginning as he was teaching and, and miracles were happening and crowds were surrounding Jesus. Peter was in the midst of all that. And the last time we were together in verses uh, 14 through 17, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law there in Capernaum in his house. Matthew tells us that this miracle resulted in a great crowd of people that came and surrounded Peter's house. 
That's what we see here. And then following that, uh, following verse 17 into verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So as the crowds were surrounding, they heard the news of the miracles. They heard that Jesus was in town. And Jesus seeing the crowds surrounding the house and surrounding his people, he says, we've got to go. We have other business. And so they're now walking, if you can imagine, from Peter's house down to the shore. This is the scene. Now, Matthew recounts this crowd following Jesus and two men are mentioned calling after Jesus. If you can imagine the scene, they're walking down the coast, down the coast, probably down a path to the ocean. And there are two men that call out to Jesus in this text. But there's also a, another account of, of this, of this conversation in Luke chapter nine. And in your bulletin, I've given you both, both texts. If you want to follow both, you can. And because this scene is similar, but there's some differences as well. But the moment of teaching is very important for us. In Luke's account, chapter 9, verse 57, it says this, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Whereas in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 19, we are told that there was a scribe who came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It appears here that this teaching on sacrificial faith was common all throughout Jesus's ministry. And what we see here in Matthew's account and Luke's account, I'm going to say are actually two different scenes. I don't think they're the same because when you look at Luke's account in Luke chapter nine, this narrative, this interaction between disciples and Jesus follows Jesus saying, I am on my way to Jerusalem. In Luke's account, he's now beginning his journey to Jerusalem and as people are following him, there are conversations here. But in Matthew's account, it's very clear after it's coming after his time in Capernaum at Peter's house. So I think there are two encounters here, same teaching, different scenes, but same questions too. So what that, what does that tell us? When we look at the gospels and we see very similar wording, yet I think very obvious different scenes in different times, what does this tell us? That this was a common teaching of Jesus throughout his three years of ministry. It was a common question. Jesus, I will follow you. And how many times does Jesus look at those who are eager to follow and say, are you sure? Let's ponder that for a minute. Because we as Southern Baptists, we're in the Bible Belt here. How many people who say, I want to follow Jesus, I love Jesus, are never told the cost. Let's ponder that for a minute. Because if it's one thing to be eager and passionate to listen to Jesus and follow Jesus, and we want to encourage that at all costs. Yet what we see in this text is that Jesus himself taught, are you really sure? Why? Let's take a look here and see what's going on here. Why is Jesus challenging the questions of those who are eager to follow him? I think it's an important point here. The life of the true Christian will not be easy. And I think that's what we see here in this narrative. Jesus is teaching here by responding to these eager disciples who want to follow him with a very clear teaching. The life of the Christian, you want to follow me? Let me tell you what you're getting yourself into. It's not going to be easy. 
that's important for us to see. I want to follow you, Jesus, is a common claim amongst the Christians, isn't it? How many people in this room who are followers of Christ, you routinely say this to God in your prayers as you're thinking about Christ. Are you in your heart and even verbally saying, I want to follow you, Jesus? I hope so. I hope you are. And that's not just a first-time, one-time claim. That is an everyday, recurring, always being renewed every day in the Spirit. I want to follow you, Jesus. It's an everyday occurrence. I want to follow you, Jesus. It's common. But what do we mean when we willingly follow Jesus? Look here in the text here in Matthew chapter 8, verse uh, 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you where? Wherever you go. I will follow you wherever. But what does it mean to say, I will follow you wherever? What is this scribe declaring? He's declaring a vow, really. He is is proposing to Jesus, proclaiming to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. That is a promise, a vow to Christ. I want to follow you. And Jesus challenges this request because a vow is important. This last Wednesday night, if you were here, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and the wisdom of Solomon reminded us to be cautious in making vows. Amen? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Notice the wisdom of Solomon there. Now, we cannot say here that when we follow Jesus that we are paying something, but we are verbally and in our souls committing to something. That's what a vow is. Now, what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is actually a a repeat. It's actually echoing the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you make the vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So what is Jesus saying here to those disciples declaring, I want to follow you, or I will follow you? He's saying, make sure you know what you're saying. Make sure you know what you're committing to. Make sure you know what you're coming after. Because if you make this declaration to the Lord in your heart, I surrender to you, Lord, and you do not fulfill that vow, the word's very clear. You're in sin. See the point? So what is it that this young man on the road with Jesus is claiming? His words are very direct. He's not mincing words here. Matthew's account and even Luke's account are are very similar. I will follow you, but not just anywhere. The claim is wherever. I will follow you. That's an open-ended connection. I will follow you wherever, Jesus. Do you really mean it, though? That's what Jesus is challenging. Now, this is a fine proclamation for any sinner to make to Jesus. I don't want to diminish the importance of this man's words. But do we all really mean to follow Jesus wherever he goes? That's hard. 
This is what the young scribe is declaring. He's, he's publicly breaking here with his fellow religious crowd by declaring his willingness to follow Jesus. Notice that this is in public. There are many people around. Crowds are following Jesus. They're, they're, they're following Jesus and his disciples down to the, the seashore or wherever they're going, even into Jerusalem in Luke's account. Others were with Jesus. And as he and his disciples were going, this scribe, or and, and in Luke's account, some general person, is declaring this in public. Why is it significant for a scribe of the law? We'll look at that here in a second. Jesus declares that he... Actually, Jesus expects sinners to declare publicly their devotion to him. How do we know this? When we look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33... Says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is why the tradition of public testimony and public baptism in the church is so vital. It is expected. We do not come to Christ in secret. We come to Christ publicly. And we have to at least give this scribe credit. He's declaring publicly his devotion to Christ. I want to follow you. But we also have to be cautious here because throughout the gospel narratives, we see many people who cry out to Jesus with this same claim, I will follow you, but they don't. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we see that some followers come to, go ahead and flip over there, John chapter 2. That's a very important passage that uh, I've actually preached on this at a tent revival one time in the mountains of southwest Virginia. I preached on this passage, and uh, look here at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's significant. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Why is this a significant text? Because it relates to what the scribe is declaring to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. It's one thing to verbally declare, I want to follow you, Jesus. It's another thing for Jesus to know the truth of your hearts. And you notice here in John chapter 2, when you look in verse 24, even though these believers, they believed in Jesus' name, verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. You see, when there's a relationship between Jesus the Savior and us the sinner, it's a two-way street. Jesus is not going to redeem us if our heart is not sincere. Make sense? Jesus knows the hearts of all men. If he knows that you don't mean it, it's a waste of his time. Can we just say amen? Jesus, I mean, that's what John's gospel tells us. These people were following Jesus. They believed in him. They were passionate to follow him. I mean, if you're building a ministry, that's a pretty good sign. Wow, we're going to build a great ministry. Look at all these crowds. Let's just welcome them on in. And Jesus says, no, I know your heart. I don't think so. You see the genuine role of salvation here. It's not about our passion or about our declaration alone. It is about the sincere change in someone's spirit 
that the Holy Spirit is making, that Jesus Christ himself sees clearly one way or another. And this is what Jesus is declaring here in Matthew chapter 8 to these believers who are claiming him. We also see this in John chapter 6. We don't have to flip over there. But we also see in John chapter 6, this was following the great miracle of feeding of the 5,000. If you remember that narrative, 5,000 plus people were fed in a miraculous way and Jesus leaves there and goes across the uh, lake. And when he gets to the other side, there were people in that crowd who had walked around the lake and followed him because they wanted another free meal. And Jesus knew that they wanted bread, and that went into the long discourse of Jesus talking about who was the true bread of life. And he even even called them out. He said, you don't want to follow me because of me. You only want the bread that I gave you back yesterday. Jesus knows why we come to him. Jesus knows why we declare anything in his name. So what is the point of Jesus' reply to the young scribe here and the other disciples in in Matthew chapter 8? Let's flip back over there. Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at verse 20. Because in verse 19 we read, the scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. A sincere and and very honorable uh, declaration. Verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is an interesting response from Jesus, isn't it? Jesus responds to this claim of loyalty with a proverb, words of wisdom. His response gives us a glimpse, I think, into what the scribe's intent was because Jesus knows the heart of all of us. And when Jesus responds to this man, here's what I think we can infer from what was the man's intent. This young man must have lived in comfort. He must have lived in a nice home with a comfortable bed because Jesus' words point to foxes and birds. Think about that. But also, he's also bringing up here, foxes and birds have a place to live. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, yet the Son of Man has nothing. Are you sure you want to follow this? You see that? Because here's the thing. A scribe of the Mosaic law would have been accustomed to an easy life. A scribe would have worked in relative ease, sitting, writing, studying, teaching, a scholar. Not out breaking their back, sweating in the sun, earning a hard living by scratching in the dirt. So this scribe had a pretty good life. I think that's what Jesus is pointing out here to this young man. He indicates in his response that the life of a devoted disciple would be anything but easy. Anyone who followed Jesus would sleep in unusual circumstances. A follower of Jesus would be ridiculed, beaten. A difficult life, for sure. This scribe not only had an easy living, I would say most likely a scribe of the Mosaic Law was also very revered, and he would have not have really received any great opposition, probably mostly praise and accolade for being a scribe of the law. Yet Jesus is reminding him, if you follow me, you're going to have to give all that up. <laughs> the life following Jesus is anything but easy and praiseworthy and accolades. You're, 
people around the world, those in your community will spit upon you, will hit you, will beat you. You'll be homeless. You'll not be welcomed in the community anymore. Your status will go away if you follow me. You see his response. Now, when we look here as well in in, in verse 20, when Jesus says foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, here's what he says. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a phrase, the Son of Man, a title that Jesus used for himself more than any other title in the Gospels. Son of Man. It's a messianic title that we see first in Daniel chapter 7. And it emphasizes Christ's humanity, but also his humility. The divinity of Jesus stepping into humanity. Imagine going from the glory and, let's just use the word that's the best word we can think of, the comfort of being divine. Ponder that. And then stepping into humanity. Not just putting on a coat of human skin, but literally stepping into what it means to be human. Contrast the glorious ease and wonderful descriptions of heaven with what Jesus lived in here on earth. Imagine the stark contrast here. The Son of Man did not have the same comfort that he did in heaven. The change of comfort would have been profound. Yet Jesus, the Son of Man, here's one of the reasons Jesus does this. It's so he could relate to us, amen? In order for Jesus to be the true Savior of us all, he lived exactly as you and I lived. Every ounce of experience, every thought that we have, every emotion, every pain, every ache, every ridicule, everything. This is what Jesus experienced because he was real. He was human. Nowhere to sleep is what Jesus is talking about here. He has no place to call his own. He's homeless, really, but he depended on the generosity of his Father in heaven. And how did the Father in heaven provide for the, uh, for the Son of Man? Through the generosity of others who provided his needs. Even though Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, he was not destitute. God provided everything he needed. No more, no less. And the provision that Jesus received was from those who were loyal and dedicated to Christ. He had a borrowed bedroom, perhaps in Peter's house. Seems like, it seems from the gospel accounts, he was there quite a bit. He may have had his own bedroom. We don't know. But at least he had a place to sleep from the generosity of others. Isn't that great? And so even this scribe, you have to imagine, Jesus is reminding him, you follow me, you won't own much. You may not own anything. You may may get all taken away from you. Are you willing to submit your pride to the generosity of others? Now, that'll break you, won't it? Amen? Now, when we look further in this passage, there are two claims of loyalty that show the limitations that I think all of us face when we commit to to Jesus Christ in the faith. Look here as we follow in 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Now, that response in verse 22 sounds pretty cold. And if you read it for the literal sense that's here, you may come away with that, but that's not what we're seeing here. He's making a very important point. 
When you look here in verse 19, uh, the scribe says, I will follow you wherever you go, but you can imply, but only if it's comfortable. Here in verse 21, Lord, I will follow you, but permit me first to go bury my father. And then when we look at Luke's account, we actually have a third um, excuse that's not in the Matthew account. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 61, and another said, I will follow you, but first permit me to say farewell to those at home. Notice that all of these declarations of loyalty are clarified with, but, but, let me do this first. But, I don't know, let me say this. See, this is the point of Jesus' response. Our commitments to daily living, our everyday circumstances in this fallen humanity is in general conflict with a total surrender and a total commitment to Jesus Christ. How many of us have faced that today? Even this morning, getting up and coming to church. How many of us have faced the struggle of everyday living? And this is the point of Jesus' message here, his lesson. It is a lesson that he must have taught repeatedly. Here's what he's saying, that if there is a delay in your loyalty to me, you're not genuine. If there is a delay, if there's an excuse of any kind in your response to me, it is not a genuine declaration of faith, period. How do we see this? Because we saw this in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Any delay in honoring the Lord is a sin, period. Amen? Now let's look here in verse 22. One of the disciples who wanted to follow him had the excuse of wanting to go bury his father. And Jesus' response in 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Again, this seems pretty cold. But in response to this disciple who wanted to follow him, but had a declaration publicly that he had to do his duty to his dead father first. Notice this was still a public declaration. Dear Jesus, I want to follow you, but I have to go bury my father. Now, what's the reason? What's going on there? Jesus, I think, in his response here in verse 22, he reveals again the true intent of the declaration of following Jesus. It was not primarily about Jesus, but instead was first a public declaration, perhaps, of one's piety. He wanted everyone in the crowd to see, I am loyal to my father. My parents need me. As the Mosaic law declares, let me go honor them first, Jesus, and then I'll come back. So what was the intent of the declaration? It wasn't about Jesus. I think it was more about the disciples' personal piety. Look at me, the dutiful son, one worthy of Jesus, one worthy of public honor, but I'll come to you when I'm done, when it's time, when it's convenient. Jesus, I think he reveals the true intent. I think both of the scribe and this unnamed disciple. This man was truthfully declaring that he had responsibilities to his parents. Now, is there anything wrong with being devoted to especially your aging parents. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Not, a matter of fact, uh, the scriptures make it real clear we're supposed to. But this man, I think he was truthfully declaring that he had responsibilities to his parents, but that he had to wait until his father passed. We don't know if his father was already dead or that these wording of I have to go bury my father first was another way of saying I have to wait until my father passes. Another delay tactic. Could also imply he has to wait for his father to uh, pass away so that he gets his inheritance and then he can live comfortably following Jesus. 
A lot of different possible scenarios. We don't have a real clear, but we can infer quite a few different things here. But again, I think the intent here of this declaration was not about Jesus, but I think it was more of a public declaration of look at my piety. I am an honorable son. But we have to think here about, let's think deeper here about this committing to your parents. Because Jesus, he also condemns Pharisees for withholding their care for elderly parents. Because when we look here in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus' response is saying, you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Almost sounds like ignore your parents and just come follow me. That's, I don't think that's really what Jesus means. Because Jesus does condemn the Pharisees for withholding the care of their elderly parents and using the excuse, I have to serve the temple. If you look over, the, there's two ways, if you're taking notes, we see this in Matthew chapter 15 around verse 5, but Mark's account in Mark chapter 7, I think, is the most detailed. If you'll flip over to Mark chapter 7, let's read that together. And let's get a deeper understanding of what it means to take care of parents in relation to serving Christ. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. And this is dealing, if you look at the, at the uh, verses prior to uh, beginning in verse 10, you see that there's this interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus about uh, tradition. Now look here at beginning in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 11, but you say, talking to the Pharisees, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. What's happening here? The Pharisees are using tradition as an excuse for not taking care of aging parents. That's what we see here in verse uh, verse 11. If a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me, in other words, the support that you would have had from me in your old age has now been given to the Lord. Serve yourself. Take care of yourself. I'm sorry. I'm serving God. Look at me how pious I am. And Jesus condemns this. You cannot divert your responsibilities to family and say that, oh, I'm serving God instead. In other words, don't use service to the Lord as an excuse for not doing the honorable thing that God expects you to do. You see the deeper point here? So why in Matthew Matthew chapter 8, is Jesus really condemning this disciple who says, I have to go bury my father first? It's clearly the intent is not genuine. Because Jesus would have said, go take care of your parents. That's the honorable thing. You can do both. You can follow Jesus wherever he goes and still do your family responsibilities too. It is doable. That's the point. Amen. You can't use one or the other as an excuse. Jesus condemns this excuse. He's, he's condemning the excuse of piety or the excuse of religious tradition for not validating the word of God. Because when you divert the funds that are needed to care for your aging parents to the work of the kingdom or to the work of the church, Jesus points to the selfishness and the pious piety here of the religious. You're not honoring God in this. 
So do you see the problems here in Matthew and Luke's account? Those who wish to follow Jesus may have good intentions. I think everyone who comes to Jesus at whatever stage of their life, whether it be vacation Bible school, whether it be from the preaching of God's Word, whether it be from sitting in your room and feeling the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin, whatever the mood is, intentions are good. But let's see here what what is Jesus revealing to us. Those who wish to follow Christ, it's good. But if their loyalties lie elsewhere, it's not good. That's the point. Excuses that delay one's commitment to Christ are merely that, excuses. That's all they are. I want to follow Jesus, but my family needs me first. You ever heard that one? I want to follow Jesus, but my job keeps me from committing to Jesus. You ever heard that one? Does our job get in the way? I want to follow Jesus, but I have a home to maintain. I'm too busy. Is that an excuse? I want to follow Jesus, but I need a comfortable living to do so. I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go, as long as it's a great 5,000 square foot house on 20 acres. See, we're, we're putting conditions on following Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but ministry is expensive. I want to follow Jesus, but going on the mission field is too expensive. We can't do that. You ever heard that excuse? I want to follow Jesus, but I have to get over my fear of water before I can get baptized. I hear that all the time. I love Jesus. I've prayed the prayer. He's forgiven me. Oh, but I'm afraid of water. I can't get baptized. That's an excuse. That's the first step of commitment to the Lord. He'll help you get over your fear if you're afraid of water. You know, we'll figure out a way. It's okay. Amen? I want to follow Jesus. And here, here's one I've heard. But my girlfriend and I are living together, and we need to get married first before I do. Well, that's good, but what's taking you so long? See the point? It's an excuse. I want to follow Jesus, but I can't move my family. They're too settled. Hear it all the time. I want to follow Jesus, and here's what we have going on right now. I want to follow Jesus, but the U.S. government's coming after us. We, we won't, they won't let us worship. That's the latest excuse I hear from the Christians, from the church that I'm tired of hearing in, in news media, even in conversations around the community. Everybody's so consumed with what the news media tells us. They're so consumed with what's going on in California that they're worried here that we're being stopped. We're not being stopped from worshiping folks. We're not being stopped from worshiping and following Jesus. Why are we so consumed with what we're reading and listening to in the news? Let's follow Jesus. Amen? I want to follow Jesus, but COVID-19 makes me afraid. I can't follow him. That's another one. We need to be wise with the pandemic. We need to be wise, but we can't let excuses keep us from following the Lord. Amen? Let's be, let's be wise and let's not be foolish, but let's not let excuses stop us. Here's another one that I hear often. I want to follow Jesus, but I just don't feel well. I love you, but Jesus can heal you. Amen. Ross Duthot, uh, a, actually a New York Times columnist. If you ever read his stuff, he's very deep. He writes about religion all the time. He has a book, his recent book is called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. I challenge you all to read that book. I gave you that book for graduation. Have you read it yet? You're, it's a, it's a thick read, isn't it? However, that's why I, I knew Jimmy could handle it. 
That's why I gave it to him for his graduation. He's a, high, he's a college graduate. He can read a deep, deep, deep thinking book, right? But the title of the book, Bad Religion, How He Became a Nation of Heretics, here's his, here's his theme. I mean, this, is, this is his argument in the whole book. People in denominations who accommodate secular and cultural tradition into theology and the practice of Christianity, he calls them accommodationists. Matter of fact, his term here is accommodationist Christianity. And it's, he's critical of it, rightly so. How many of us accommodate our devotion to the Lord with something other than the Lord? We're all guilty of it. And so that's the point here that Jesus is teaching these disciples. And again, it's not just one scene. I, from what I see in Matthew's account and Luke's account, this is the only two places we see this interaction between disciples. I think we see the clear scene that this was a common discussion and teaching of Jesus throughout his ministry. I want to follow you, Jesus, but... And Jesus makes it real clear. If you have any delay, I have nothing to do with you. That's profound. Scripture is full of examples of those who have put worldly concerns before the Lord. And I'm just going to share two with you, and you may even have more come to your mind. You remember Lot's wife when they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened to Lot's wife? She looked back at her home in Sodom in Genesis chapter 19, and she was turned to a pillar of salt because she turned back around to see the home she was leaving. That was vile and disgusting. She still turned to go back to it, at least to look back to it. Rachel, when she, when, when she was going with Jacob, she stole her father's household gods in Genesis chapter 31 when she and Leah lamented losing a portion of their inheritance from their father's house. You remember when they found the small idols? The reason that she stole her father's idols was not out of spite, It was because she couldn't let go. She wanted something to connect her to her father, even idols. Folks, what is it that you're holding on to this morning? We all have something. This is a constant state of the Christian life. What is it that we're holding on to instead of Jesus? Remember, delays hinder the well-intended. And Jesus echoes the Old Testament law. But look here in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Here's what he says to the following, or or to that last disciple. Luke chapter 9, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's pretty direct. You put your hand to the plow, you finish the job. One of the things I tried to teach my boys when they were growing up, and uh, the house that we had in southwest Virginia was one acre all on a hill. None of it was flat. That's what southwest Virginia is. It's all mountainous. And the only way to mow that was either get some goats or to get some weed eaters out there and just go at it. Well, we lived in a we lived in the side of the city limits. We couldn't have goats, so I had two boys. And one of the things I tried to teach them was a good hard work ethic. When you start the job, you finish it. I don't care how hard it is. It would take us all weekend to weed. I mean, I had the good weed eaters, two hundred dollar straight shaft steel weed eaters, good working machines. 
And we just go out there and just good hard work and we work together. Now they would whine and they would complain just like I did when I was their age. My grandfather did the same thing to me. He had me out there working hard. But one thing we had to teach them, when you start a job, you don't quit. When you put your hand to the plow, and if you turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Christian, have you put your hand to the plow? Have you grabbed on to Jesus Christ? Have you committed to Him fully? Has He radically changed you so much that you are so committed to the kingdom of heaven and so committed to Jesus Christ that you're going to finish the job? Or are you going to quit? You're going to quit because the our community and our society is coming after Christians? You're going to quit? You're going to let them tell you what you can and cannot say, what you can and cannot do? Are you even going to allow those who oppose the faith to cause you to be angry about proclaiming the faith? We don't get angry at our opponents. Jesus didn't. He laid down willingly on that cross. Now, there were times where he raised his voice when it was necessary. But when he was dealing with those who were lost and sinful, who needed salvation, he was as compassionate and direct with them as he could be. We don't allow the opposition to stop us from being in Christ. Amen? The truth of the heart will always reveal itself, I think, when Jesus speaks to us. When Jesus, when we would come to Jesus because we have been drawn to Him, let's make sure we understand this, when we're drawn to Christ, and that's what's happening here, these disciples, they have been witnessing and seeing Jesus and hearing Him preach, and they're hearing the truth of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit is drawing them to Jesus Christ, and they come, and when they reveal themselves to Jesus, Jesus reveals Himself to them. He's going to reveal any hint of delay in our spirit that would stop us from being faithful. Blessed are you, Matthew chapter 5. Remember when we went through the uh, Beatitudes? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why does Jesus teach that? Because he's promising us that if you come after Jesus, it's not going to be easy. Remember Luke's account, this is the account where he is already on his way to Jerusalem to die. And when you declare to Jesus on that journey, I want to follow you, what are you saying? I want to follow you to the cross, Jesus. Are you really up to the challenge? Are you really up to that type of commitment? Look over and we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, I think, being the most radical disciple, but the most, the one that Even though Jesus says that John is the one that he loves the most, I think there was a special place in Jesus' heart for Peter because he was so passionate. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll close with this. Beginning in verse 12. Here's what Peter tells us about suffering as a Christian. Because if you commit to Jesus the way that we should, there will be guaranteed suffering and persecution. That's really the point of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 8. Look here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How many American Christians have not heard this verse? What? They're coming after me? I've got rights. 
Well, Peter says, why are you surprised? You see the point? Verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That's a busybody or a gossip. That's what that means. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What a wonderful passage for the time of and season of life we have. As a church, in our community, in our nation, in our culture, we need to look back to this text every single day, I think. It's coming. We're no longer the Christian nation that we once were. And I will admit to that. Yet our response to that is not, oh, oh, is me, they're taking my rights. Jesus said, take glory in it. Hallelujah. You see the point? <laughs> Look here. Peter makes it clear not to be surprised at the suffering for Christ. So if you say, I will follow you anywhere, Jesus, what you are saying is, I will follow you to the point of suffering and persecution, Lord. Are you willing to do it? But when you suffer for Christ, verses 12 and 13 says, also have joy in the suffering. Can you have joy in the persecution and the suffering? Can you? This is the unique call of those who follow Jesus. We share in His suffering just as much as we share in His resurrection. Verse 14 reminds us, persecution and suffering for the faith is a sign of blessing. So if you're facing hardship, that's what you signed up for. Hallelujah. And it's also a sign that God's glory is upon you. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, you trust your soul to the faithful creator while you're doing the good in the midst of the suffering. Genuine faith is followed by genuine commitment. Let's not forget that. Genuine faith is genuine commitment, especially evidenced by suffering. The suffering and the persecution will reveal whether your commitment is genuine. Got to remember that. And let's also remember that personal sacrifice, giving up ourselves, giving up all that we hold dear, is necessary. Jesus expects it. A genuine disciple of Christ is one who's willing to go to the end with no baggage to hold you back. So where are you? I'm going to let the Word of God just rest. Amen. Father God, we thank You. The words of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in the Matthew's Gospel and even in Luke's Gospel reminds us of a common thread of those who seek to be Christ followers. Are we genuine in our commitment? Are we genuine in our devotion? Are we genuine in our faith that Jesus Christ has bought us with His blood? Are we so devoted that we'll go anywhere? Lord, everyone in this room will, will confess that we won't. There is something or many things that distract us and cause delay and our full commitment to your Son. 
And I pray, God, that everyone here, everyone who's hearing these words, would also hear the words of your son Jesus in this text. If you put your hand to the plow and you turn around, you're not fit for the kingdom. That's hard words, but necessary words. And so, God, I pray for your mercy and your grace upon everyone here, even me, that if we delay in our devotion to you, that you would cause us to see our sin and that you would help us to overcome that by turning to Christ and committing to him fully one more time. Lord, I pray for your blessing here. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.